Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. This show is sponsored by Wine Access, my exclusive sponsor. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. Join the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club to get some of the most amazing and unique wines at the best prices. Check it out today. And to get access to the site and see a page of my picture, you can go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You will get 10% off your first order. They are a fantastic partner who supports this show, so please support them. Do it today. A very quick intro to this outstanding podcast, which really speaks for itself. I wanted to re-release this after the podcast with Felicity Carter last week. I think it is really important to hear both reinforcement and some differences in what these two people who are writing and studying this issue are talking about. The thing that you need to remember about my conversation with Christopher is that it happened in 2019. And there's a lot of foreshadowing as to what was going to happen. Both he and I had a lot of concern. And if you listen to the podcast with Felicity, unfortunately, many of the things that he said did come to fruition. So we will see what the ultimate resolution of this is, but it is a really interesting issue. I thought for the sake of absolute completeness, it is important for us to hear what Christopher was talking about in 2019. Honestly, it probably could have been recorded yesterday, just with a little bit more information about the big drop that Felicity made about who's behind all of this. Anyway, fascinating show. Definitely take a listen and keep in mind the show that you listened to with Felicity last week. We are so honored and so lucky. And honestly, Chris, I'm a little bit nervous because you're so smart and I'm I'm afraid I'm afraid I'm gonna misinterpret something that you said because you're brilliant. But Christopher Snowden is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. His research focuses on social freedoms, prohibition, and policy-based evidence. He's the author of five books, Killjoys. Selfishness, Greed, and Capitalism, The Art of Suppression, The Spirit Level Delusion, and Velvet Glove Iron Fist, which is also the name of his blog. He's written more than a dozen reports for the Institute of Economic Affairs, and he is a regular columnist for the Spectator Health blog. That is the article that we're going to be discussing March 28th, 2019. He wrote a fantastic article, which is a follow-up to a bunch of other articles. But this particular one was called The Campaign to Make Alcohol the New Tobacco. It really caught my eye. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction. Well, you are very accomplished. So I could talk to you about so many things offline because your work is its controversial. It questions the norm. I love that. Kudos to you for doing it. We need questions in this world. But your article caught my attention because in the, the U.S. and the U.K. share a lot of medical data studies back and forth. And with regard to trends in alcohol, I believe that the U.K. is generally a couple of years ahead of the U.S. So I feel like some of the stuff that you discussed is coming to in the U.S. also. We also have a lot of U.K. listeners who I'm not sure whether they, this caught their eye or didn't, but I think it's a super important topic. So tell me about your background and why you sort of champion especially wine and alcohol in your work. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it all goes back to my first book, which you mentioned, Velvet Glove Iron Fist, which was um, nearly 10 years ago. And that was mainly a history of the anti-smoking movement, really. But its its central hypothesis, I guess, was that whatever happens with smoking, tobacco regulation is probably going to happen 
in other fields, uh, alcohol, gambling even, um, and certainly food and soft drinks. And everything that's happened in the last 10 years has kind of supported that and very little has contradicted it. So it's about what you might call the slippery slope. But you didn't have to be psychic even in 2009 to see that. You only have to read the kind of op-eds and the medical journals and the, the way that the research is going and keep an eye on what's been said in public health conferences to see that they see all those um, what they would consider risk factors for diseases as being very, very similar and that the response should be very, very similar. And that at the heart of it, the problem is not with people so much as with the industry that are producing these products. They are responsible um, very much in the same way as the Anti Saloons League 100 years held the what they called the uh, the Liquor Trust responsible for people drinking and they see yeah, you know, tobacco industry is responsible for people smoking, big alcohol is responsible for people drinking, and so on. And so what you need to do from that perspective is not so much affect the demand as go after the su- supply. So it's a whole lot of supply side policies designed to essentially disrupt the market, make it more difficult to get hold of these products, make it very difficult, if not impossible, to advertise them, make them more expensive, less convenient, less available, um, that kind of thing. So what we're seeing now is a lot of anti-tobacco ideas and policies being rolled out into other areas, particularly with regards to taxation, which is always quite an easy sell to politicians, but also with warning labels, cancer warning labels, and alcohol is the next big thing, graphic warnings, restricting licensing laws, uh, and all kinds of other stuff, but including also demonizing the industry and to some extent also demonizing consumers. And a lot of the stuff that I think we're going to be talking about today involves this transition. It is a little disturbing because the way that it seems that the campaign, if we put it that way, towards this has been rolled out. There's a couple things that I find really disturbing about it. First of all, I want you to get into the research and how research has been skewed to fit the narrative. But also, I'm having a little bit of a problem, and I actually have talked about this with some people here. These articles are coming out slowly. They're distributed slowly. Years ago, not even that long ago, there was a lot of evidence coming out from the medical community that wine was good for you, especially wine. You know, I I mean, that's the world that I deal in. And I don't understand why no one is coming in to combat this narrative because the wine companies themselves can't really do it, but they fund a lot of other people who could. Let's just talk about first about the study that a lot of people are basing these spurious claims upon because This was really messed up when I started to dig into your article and then read about it just seems like somebody is really trying to pull a number on the public, right? Um, Yeah, I think that there's been quite a lot of research published in the last couple of years, which has been aimed squarely at the newspapers. Uh, It's not really academic research because it doesn't have any obvious academic merit. It's just designed to really do two things. One is to cast doubt about what are actually very well-established health benefits from moderate alcohol consumption. And it's not just wine, by the way. I think there's there's not really very good evidence that wine is any better in this regard. It's alcohol per se, when okay. consumed moderately, that seems to have a protective effect on health and particularly protective effects on the heart. And so, yeah, it's aimed at casting doubt on that. Uh, and it's also aimed at really 
exaggerating the effects of drinking or certainly moderate drinking on cancer. So there is a link between alcohol consumption, especially excessive alcohol consumption, and a few mostly fairly rare cancers. I think the epidemiology on that is pretty well established. It's much less well established that drinking light, you know, small quantities, light drinking or moderate drinking is associated in any meaningful way with any of these cancers. But I think there's a good reason they're focusing on those two things. It's because they want to be able to put warning labels on wine saying this causes cancer because that echoes again the tobacco warnings you know there's nothing wrong per se with having warning labels i don't think they're necessary actually but there is nothing wrong necessarily with having warning labels on any product that carries risk but if you were to do it with alcohol the obvious thing would be to talk about the risk to the liver you know the liver disease right. is the the most associated disease with um, alcohol consumption, probably something like drink driving would be there'd be a better case for putting labels on about that than there would be about a very, very small, in, in practical terms, insignificant risk of cancer. But it follows in the footsteps of what happened with tobacco. So that's the obvious uh, appeal. And the, the other side of it, which is the kind of dismissing or casting doubt on the health benefits, I think that the neo-temperance lobby see these health benefits as a real obstacle to regulation. It's a huge obstacle because in tobacco, you know, I know that you're you're not anti-tobacco, but there is a very, very distinct link between smoking and lung cancer or oral cancer or a bunch of other cancers. Alcohol, it is really hard to make the case, I think, that this is not an all bad thing. With tobacco, it's a little bit easier. It's a lot easier because yeah, we're talking an orders of magnitude difference in terms of the risk. So, I mean, smoking is, is one of the biggest risk factors for cancer that you will find in kind of everyday life. Um, somebody who smokes all their life will have an increased risk of lung cancer in the thousands of percent, you know, <laughs> at least a thousand percent. With alcohol, moderate drinking and breast cancer, and breast cancer is the one they tend to focus on because yep. the other ones are pretty rare in practice. We're talking a study of studies and meta-analysis found moderate drinking increased risk by 4%. Now, a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer is something like um, 6 or 7%, I think, the, the absolute risk. So an increase of 4% means it's basically still 6 or 7%. I mean, it's just a rounding error, right. even, if it's, even if it's a genuine finding. And with epidemiology, when you're down to that kind of ultra-low relative risks, it's quite possible that it's not even a real risk. You know, it could just be due to the, the way the studies are conducted. So even if the risk is real, it's not something that I, d I think would ever encourage any woman to decide that she's going to abstain from alcohol for the rest of her life, particularly when abstaining from alcohol is going to put a, a greater risk of heart disease. Well, heart disease, and now they're coming out with diabetes. It could help diabetes. There's a bunch of stuff about Alzheimer's. I mean, there's been studies that show that there are a bunch of benefits to moderate drinking. Now, I want to be very clear that we are not talking about excess drinking. However, one of the really fascinating things in your piece and in one of your prior pieces also is about this J-shaped curve for mortality. And I know this is very weedy, listeners. I'm sorry. But I think it's super important because this is where the the craziness, I think, comes in about who they're comparing in these studies. They've changed. They've moved the bar. They're peddling this to the press to put this out there. So can you explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, it's a J shape. If you can imagine a J shape on a graph, or probably easier to think of it as a U shape. It's kind of halfway between a U and a J. So you start off with your risk as a teetotaler being one, or if you prefer zero, depends how you want to look at it. But the, the baseline risk for mortality, which is to say premature death, um, you start with the with the teetotaler. As you get to people who are drinking lightly or moderately, the curve goes down. So their risk of dying prematurely is lower than that of a teetotaler. As people drink more and more, it starts to go up. It then reaches the same level as the teetotalers and then it goes up and it goes up kind of exponentially from that point um because when people are drinking large amounts the, the risk of death increases but like what's a large amount or dramatically well that's the question i yeah. mean um well in the studies i mean just give us an idea from a glass perspective i know they say moderate drinking is a glass a night or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what the parameters are, but I know a lot of people listening to this are, are interested because we all drink. Sure. And it's kind of difficult because people have so many different sizes of glass. Well, yeah. um, but broadly speaking, uh, uh, light drinking confers the greatest benefits. So a small glass of wine a day, something like that, would probably bring the the biggest gains but certainly be drinking several bottles a week you know two or three bottles a week would be about 20 to 30 units um, and that would still put you at a lower risk of mortality and a significantly lower risk of heart disease than not drinking at all i wouldn't like to say at what point exactly it starts crossing over and you start being at an increased risk but certainly a glass a, a day would be safe, you know, if you want to call it that. Even a couple bottles a week is is still in the okay zone, likely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I that would only be 20 units. Right. And that's what I think. I think a lot of people have a couple glasses a night. And then generally speaking, there's five glasses per bottle of wine. So two to three bottles a week seems right to me. That excess, that really high level of drinking is a real minority. But that is what the study focused on, but the the study focused on a different comparison than what traditionally is done. So explain that too. Well, yes, it it um, it tried to equate the risks of drinking a bottle or a week of wine with smoking cigarettes. And firstly, it's disregarded all the evidence showing that there are health benefits. It just upfront said don't believe that these health benefits exist. So we're, we're going to ignore um, the protective effect of heart disease, which is the most common cause of death. And we're going to focus on the cancer risk of really quite uncommon cancers and also breast cancer, which of course is more common. One way or the other, they managed to find an increased risk, which I guess you would if you're going to completely disregard the benefits. And they thought it works out at about five cigarettes per week. Now, we don't actually know what the risk is of smoking five cigarettes a week because almost nobody does it. Certainly not enough people do it to conduct a study. So you're making extrapolation straight away. But it's 10 um, cigarettes if you're a woman, right? Exactly, because, yeah, so because of the breast cancer thing. So it right. shows you how important this breast cancer link is in finding any increased risk. Um, but again, we don't really know what 10 cigarettes a week means either. So the whole thing is 
meaningless. So the authors portrayed this as being a really useful way of communicating risk. In actual fact, it's more confusing than ever. Even leaving aside that the basic methodology is wrong because they're, they're ignoring all the effective effect. The the whole purpose of the study, as far as I can see, was just to get cigarettes and wine in the same headline in the newspapers. So yeah. people would start thinking there's some kind of equivalence between the two risks. Well, and the traditionally, the comparison is non-drinkers to drinkers. It's the traditional comparison of what you were talking about. The way that they got around this is by saying it's people who drink lightly versus moderate drinking. So it skewed everything and made it look like moderate drinking is not good for you because they, they moved the line. The curve is much more accentuated if you compare teetotalers or non-drinkers to drinkers. But if you start yes. doing light drinkers versus moderate drinkers, now you're talking about a study. This is not comparable to anything that's been studied before, but they did it so they could make their evidence look better. Yeah, that was a different study, though, I think. That was a study that came out a few months prior, which, again, got a huge amount of attention published in The Lancet, which is still regarded, I think, wrongly as being one of the most reputable um, medical journals. Right. But that was I, that was a, a different study to the one that directly equated drinking wine with smoking cigarettes. But yeah, definitely worth talking about because it got a huge amount of attention. And I think actually it was that study, which was then quoted by the people who did the cigarette study as being proof that there were no protective effects from uh, moderate alcohol consumption. So yeah, what they did in that one, it was really quite remarkable and in a way kind of appalling, but it made it through the peer review system and got published. They did exactly as you said, they just ignored the teetotalers. So I said before that you'd use your teetotalers as the baseline, right? It seems to me if you're going to ask the question, is moderate drinking safe, your definition of safe would be no more risky than not drinking at all. That seems kind of common sense. Yeah, you need a control they, group, right? So, but they didn't do that. So they used the lightest drinkers as the as a control group, effectively. And also, as I said before, light drinking is definitely better for you than even moderate drinking, um, although both seem to be better than not drinking at all. So they, if you start the graph with the moderate drinkers who have a roughly 25% lower mortality risk than the teetotalers, then all you see is a curve going up. And when that was presented to people, it looked like there was no J curve. There was just a linear line or right. an exponential line going up. So at first glance, if you didn't read the study too carefully, it did look as if risk increases from the word go. Um, but you didn't have to dig too much deeper to see that actually this was just sleight of hand, you know. And again, it didn't have any academic merit. All it did actually, if you looked at the full graphs, which I think were published in some appendix that nobody would ever read, it was just a classic J curve again, you know, across the board. It just showed us for the umpteenth time what we've known since the uh, early 1970s, which is that there is a J curve of, of risk. And not drinking is risky also. So. <laughs> yeah, but they would never say that. I mean, there's just no, no chance about them ever putting that on, on a label. I, as I said, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with labeling things to tell people what the risks are, but you've got to give them the full information. I'm a huge advocate of labeling what is in the wine also. I think that that's a big mm. problem also. In in the wine industry, there are people, the larger companies use all sorts of additives and things, and the only thing that's required by law to be labeled is sulfites. And then the issue with labeling, I think, is that as soon as you put something on there, people start to think that it's a, a serious problem. So for instance, yeah. yes, operating machinery, drinking while pregnant, all of that 
not a great idea, except, well, I was pregnant and I drank in moderation. But anyway, that's a I already did a podcast on that. But I think the problem is what I hear from people is, oh, those sulfites in wine. Oh, my gosh, they give me a, a headache. That's not what gives – it is such a small mm. population. They put that warning on for the small population who actually does have a terrible, terrible allergy to sulfites. All of us are suffering from other things like the histamines in wine or high alcohol in wine and not drinking while you're eating or other things. But but it's not the sulfites. Sulfites don't cause headaches. And that's one thing we actually do know. But I worry that as soon as you put a cancer warning on there, look, with cigarettes, it's true. But with wine, because what we're talking about is such a very, very low risk. And again, it disregards the benefits. I mean, we are putting the cart before the horse, or if we're going to do this, we might as well have all honesty in labeling, you know? Yeah. And there isn't enough room on the labels to, to do it. You know, I well, actually talk about this in, in my book, Killjoys, which can be downloaded for free, by the way, if anyone just Googles it, I'll plug that there. Please do. Don't make any money website, out of it. But I do, I do write a few pages about it. Um, well, you can find you, my website is Velvet Glove Iron First, the blog. And yeah, I've got ChristopherSnowden.com. I think you can download the book from yes. there too. That's right. That's um, but yeah, I, I talk about this because, uh, you know, I'm in favor of information, as you obviously are, but there's only so much information you can actually fit on the label. And to give people the full account of the various costs and benefits of drinking at different levels would require a 2,000-word essay. So what the anti-alcohol people want really is a label that says this causes cancer. And that would be misleading, even though it's technically true that if you drink a lot, you increase your risk of some cancers. It would effectively be misleading because what else has a cancer label on it outside California, at least? Um, just just cigarettes, right? And people have a you know, broadly they know the kind of magnitude of risk that's going to come from smoking. If you put the same label on alcohol, people are going to have an exaggerated impression of the risk. And of course, that's a feature. It's not a bug of what the temperance lobby want. They want people to think exactly that. So even though it's technically true, just as it would be technically true to put this causes cancer on bacon or sausages, (laughs) it would be misleading because people would get an exaggerated sense of the risk. This incidentally also comes up in the discussion about GM crops. Now, GM organisms by all accounts are safe. There are some people who think that even though science recognizes them as safe, they should still, the GM products should have a label on it saying this contains GMOs. Um, And again, it wouldn't be untrue information, but the mere fact that the government has decided to put a label on it, which is effectively a warning label, would give people the, the wrong impression. It would give them the impression that something dangerous about this. So I think we need to be very cautious about labeling. Normally, it's, yeah. just, it's, it's unnecessary. You know, the government is capable of doing educational campaigns without having to put a label on everything that carries any level of risk. There's one reason, one reason, reason only the public health lobby want cancer labels on alcohol, and that's because they want to go down tobacco road. Who is paying for these studies that we're talking about? Because you got to oh, follow the money, right? I mean, that's people. always that's always where we're where we're headed. Is it the is it somebody who has a vested interest in temperance? Well, it's, it's generally the government in some guise or other. I mean, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of money swirling around public health, and most of it comes from the government. When it comes to this kind of research, which is technically, I guess, scientific or medical research, it tends to be government organisations. So I don't think there's a, really a kind of financial thing to go down. Um, it's just that the public health movement has turned into an industry, and within it there are 
good researchers and bad, basically. I mean, there are people who go into that field because they genuinely are, are seeking knowledge, they genuinely want to save lives and help people, and there's other people who go into it um, because they have other things they want to do and other things they want to achieve. There's a big element of anti-capitalism to it. There's there's all sorts of political agendas going on, and there's just good old-fashioned puritanism. You know, yeah. the people who would have been in the anti-saloon league 100 years ago are now working in public health and calling themselves public health professionals, but they're doing exactly the same thing and singing from very much the same hymn sheet. Um, it's just that you don't notice the kind of gospel temperance element of it anymore because it's all cloaked in this aura of science. Here's the really weird or scary part about it, and I don't know how much you have heard about this, but I, I assume that you've seen it in the press in the UK. It's in France. It is definitely in the US, but the millennial generation, according to a lot of studies, is drinking less and some of it is financial and there's other there are other things there, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that they perceive alcohol to be unhealthy. So I wonder if part of this is, hey, guess what? We've got this generation. Let's feed this narrative. Yeah, they, that could well be it. I mean, I suspect they'd probably be doing it regardless of how much millennials were drinking because that's just the way things have been going. And there's a big debate about, around why younger people are not drinking as much. Um, there are a couple of things probably worth pointing out. One is that they, they do tend to drink less, but they do tend to drink. So they tend to spend more money yep. on alcohol. Um, so they'll buy crap beer, but only have maybe two pints of it, whereas my generation might have just had normal beer and had uh, several more pints. Um, and also there's a whole issue around technology and social media, which means that, A, people are just not maybe as bored as they, they might have been. There are more things for them to do. Um, but also people are so inter interconnected uh, in terms of, you know, you don't want to be going out and embarrassingly drunk because there'll be photos on Facebook the next day and all That's this kind of point. thing. So there are all sorts of reasons. I don't think that even scratches the surface of it. Um, but yeah, it does make them, if they are concerned about their health, and I think there's no doubt that millennials are much more health conscious than previous generations, they are easy targets for this kind of scaremongering. We'll take a break from the podcast to thank our sponsor, Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal and join the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club. We have some things in store for you this year. It's unbelievable. And you can only get them through Wine Access. Wine Access believes that the barrier to entry in wine is access. You can't get access to a lot of really cool stuff, but they let you do that. On the Wine Club, I also have some contacts that I have used to bring in some new and interesting wines that they didn't previously carry. So I think you are going to find that there will be some familiar things from the show that are going to make an appearance in the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club. It's $150 for six bottles and you get four shipments a year. Shipping is included. It is a great deal. And I am telling you, since I select the wines, you're going to love, love, love what we have picked out for the wine club this year. Also, if you want to just buy a couple of bottles, dip your toe in, get 10% off your first order, you're going to go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. That's going to let them know that you found them through me, which is really important because they are our sponsor and we want to support them. Check it out today. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal for the wine club. 
also, don't forget, if you want back episodes of the podcast, it is now on Patreon. Only on Patreon can you get those back episodes. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wine for normal people for as little as $2 a month or $21 a year. You get a discount if you join for the year. You can get access to the back catalog. It's taken a lot of time and effort and years to accumulate that catalog. And so now we have made it a member perk for patrons. So I hope that you will consider joining, especially if you were on the fence and thinking about it. Now is the time. I think you will love the patron community, that this is yet another perk that the patrons will be enjoying and hopefully you'll join them. And also don't forget wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes. Take a live class with me. Enjoy your Saturday night. Grab a couple of the bottles of wine that I recommend and taste and have fun with a great community and learn a ton. If you want to dork out on wine, that's a great way to do it. And you can do it in the comfort of your home in your pajamas. <laughs> Wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes. Now let's get back to the show. Wow. I mean, 2019 and here we are in 2024 and the same stuff is going on. A lot of the stuff that Chris predicted did come true. Listen to the rest of the show. You'll see what I mean. I'm in the, the U.S. This I hate bringing up the whole fake news, blah, blah, blah. It's so politicized. But is the press to blame here? Because there's a lot of chicken little. I'll just read some of the headlines because you and I know them, but the audience doesn't. One drink a day can shorten life, BBC, which they changed, right? Because they got in trouble for that. Alcohol standards in many countries may not be safe by Yahoo. Drinking is as harmful as smoking, The Guardian. And It's crazy that this is going on. So is the press to blame or is it what's being fed to them? It's a bit of both. Sometimes it's one, not the other. Actually, it's surprisingly frequent for it to be the the faults of the journals, the authors, um, and in particular, actually, the, the people who make the press releases for the journals. Medical journals are like any other publication. You know, they're, they're going after name recognition. They've got advertisers. You know, they are commercial operations. And increasingly, um, the field of research is based around getting high-profile publications and people's university careers depend on them having you know, high-profile high publications in high-profile journals. So there's more of an incentive to kind of dumb down your research than people might assume. Um, on top of that, obviously, newspapers need to sell copies. Right. It's very often, I mean, the headlines you read there – I think in every case, the headline would be an exaggeration of what the article itself said. The article might not be great, but the headlines very often get it completely wrong. So, I mean, BBC article, I remember, uh, the article wasn't too bad, if I recall. No, the headline it wasn't, because they changed so the title. I read it. Changed. Yeah, it was fairly accurate, and, it's, and it did bring up the counterpoints also. But, the, yeah. but to read it, it was just, wow. I mean, if all you saw was the headline, it was like, I'm putting down the drink right now. Yeah, there's no excuse for the BBC doing it. You know, I can understand commercial newspapers. It's perfectly understandable that they are going to try and exaggerate things. I'd rather they didn't, but they do need to sell issues. But the BBC doesn't. The BBC is funded essentially by taxpayers. It should be um, a beacon of truth and impartiality, and I'm afraid it's very often not. So, I mean, to answer your question, it's all of them, um, but actually very often it's the researchers themselves. The two studies that we've spoken about earlier, very much the fault of the researchers, very much the fault of the journals, frankly, for public 
publishing it and, and the peer reviewers were not doing their job. Yeah, there's not enough questioning. It feels like intellectual dishonesty. Here's the thing. So the UK has never had total prohibition. No. But we've done it, mm-hmm. and Canada's done it, and New Zealand's done it, and guess what? The experiment is a complete failure, and it leads to the exact opposite effect of what these people want. So I am trying to figure out what their motivation is, because when you start to go down this road, which it seems that they're going down, there is going to be a backlash, because whether they like it or not, drinking is part of human life. We have had it for thousands upon thousands of years. The fermented beverage has been part of social life. It has been part of people communing over wine or whatever, in in the pubs, whatever it is. And here we are going down this road that is inevitably going to lead to the exact opposite thing. So what's the deal? Why are they doing this? They they don't see the forest for the trees. It's so confusing to me because, again, being somebody who lives in a country that is still being affected by the prohibition movement, we talked before we started recording about all of the state laws, and some of them are driven by tax revenue, but a lot of them are driven by these leftover views about alcohol and about restricting people's access to alcohol, even though... As a culture, as a country, we have said that it's okay here. So it doesn't seem like it's headed down a good path because if the UK or eventually the US starts down this path, it's only going to lead to the opposite effect. We have plenty of proof of that. Yeah, I mean, well, the logical conclusion of the campaign would be prohibition. But I think if you spoke to these people, the vast majority of them, if not all of them, would deny having prohibitionist intent. And I think, in fact, most of them would be genuine about that. I mean, a lot of these people do drink themselves. Um, There is still a surprise, in in Europe at least, there's still a surprising number of old school prohibitionist outfits still still pulling strings, still funding research, um, but acting under a completely different name. Um, But leaving that aside, I don't think they are prohibitionists. um, And certainly, even if they were, it would take a very long time to get anywhere near that. Uh, What they intend to do in the short to medium term is just put a lot of sand in the gears of the market. At this point in time, what they want is to ban all alcohol advertising, to certainly have warnings, preferably graphic warnings on bottles and cans, to push the alcohol industry out of any kind of policy making arena so they don't want them to be speaking they don't want the industry to be speaking to politicians they want to really just have the politicians to themselves to get their own one-sided views across Uh, and to have very high rates of tax Uh, if you ask them how high should it be they wouldn't have an answer it's just just higher whatever it is now it should be higher because all this stuff as far as they're concerned reduces demand and if you reduce demand then you reduce alcohol consumption now that is quite a you know, plate full of, of policies to be getting on with. They don't need to be thinking about prohibition at this point. I don't honestly think that any drinkers need to be worried about prohibition unless they live in India. Is that but, an issue in India? Yeah, they have prohibition in a few places. And as, as with America 100 years ago, they have a lot of deaths from people drinking moonshine. They have endemic corruption and crime due to a, a big black market. So yeah, a surprisingly large number of People in India are covered by prohibition laws, and they don't look like they're going away. If anything, they look like they're they're going to be expanded. But in the Western world, it's not something we've got to worry about, partly for the reasons you've already outlined. The government is pretty heavily reliant 
on alcohol taxes. Most people drink, including the kind of people who make laws. So that's that's a big deal. Well, it's an important thing it because is, I think I think eventually we will be seeing prohibition of cigarettes, and partly that is because the kind of people who make laws do not smoke cigarettes, and cigarettes are now so associated with people on low incomes who yeah, are kind of disenfranchised true. politically that they're not going to put up much of a fight. But alcohol is, is clearly very different in that respect. So the public health people, they'll do what they can. You know, they're, they're realistic. They will push at doors if they think they're going to open. They're not going to call for prohibition, even if they, that's what they want. They will just incrementally push ahead with more and more policies that just make alcohol less affordable, less advertised and more expensive. This is the worry that I have about all of this. You have extremists. This information is being seeped out to the public and people don't read anymore and there's not a whole lot of questioning. But the other problem that I really have, which I brought up earlier, and I'm curious to know what your view is, is why the alcohol lobby is so strong. They have so much money. I don't, why aren't they doing anything? There's obviously a ton of evidence against this, but they're not striking back. There's no hitting back. And it's confusing because this is their livelihood. It seems to me that anybody who has a horse in this race and all of them do. I mean, there are many huge, very powerful companies, especially the liquor companies. Wine has a lot less money than liquor. But I'm not understanding why there's no counter studies being funded, why none of that is showing up in the press. Then what do we do as consumers to figure out what's actually real? I mean, a lot of this is very confusing, but there's no opposition research <laughs> coming out. Um, well, I kind of ask a similar question. You know, when I meet people from the industries I write about, I kind of always ask them the same thing. Why aren't you doing more? You've got so much money. You know, I don't have any deep inside information on this, but I think they are you know, the bigger the company, the more risk averse they are. You might find that the people who work in the industry off the record will say that they'd love to do a lot more, but they're they're hamstrung by lawyers and, and shareholders and so on. Um, in terms of conducting their own research, well, firstly, if they paid for the research, it would just be dismissed by the public health lobby anyway. They did try to put on a big study you might have heard about with the NIAAA, yes. in which they were trying to resolve this J-curve issue once and for all by doing, I think, a 14-year kind of randomized control trial, but it all fell apart due to due to the NIAAA, actually, I think think was later spun as being the industry had been trying to do something nefarious but i don't think that's actually what happened and in terms of lobbying i'm sure they do a lot especially in in america and people like you and i probably will never find out exactly what's happening day to day in terms of their own lobbying efforts yeah i would like them to be a lot more upfront. i would like them to really get under the front foot but they are very cautious, particularly when it comes to this whole cancer issue. They, didn't, they certainly don't want to be seen to be – well, they don't want to be seen to be the tobacco industry, basically. They've been accused of acting like the tobacco industry all the time. Right. They're careful not to do anything that could give that impression. And challenging science is kind of the most big tobacco-type thing that they could be doing. So they're, they're very keen not to be seen to be any kind of doubt on the cancer stuff in particular. I agree with that. But I guess that I look at universities like California Polytechnic Institute, UC Davis, they are indirectly funded by companies because they receive endowments and things like that. But there's no reason why they should not be coming out with research 
that supports the claims that we're making, which which have been made for years, and getting that out to the press. I do understand the issues regarding large companies, but there are other people who have skin in the game who should be putting this out there, and they're just quiet. And it seems to me that that's not a good route to go. At this point, being risk-averse can only wind up bolstering the argument for prohibition or for increased taxation or for a ban on advertising or, you know, stuff on the bottle that was that can be damning, especially to new drinkers. And I'm so confused about how some of these third parties who have skin in the game aren't doing anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I'd like them to be more bullish. Um, at the same time, you know, you said it yourself, people are going to keep drinking. And the, the booze companies know this, you know. Yeah. I mean, the tobacco industry's had so much thrown in over the years but you look at their share price it really hasn't made any difference it just kept making lots and lots of money and the the alcohol industry probably rightly doesn't feel that much of this stuff is actually going to affect their their profits that it can handle a tax rise here or there something like plain packaging would certainly terrify them but i don't think they think there's much of a realistic prospects of that in the short term and and that's critical the short term uh, businesses especially large businesses do tend only to kind of look over the next 12 months people move around far too much for my liking in these corporations the revolving door between different businesses and different industries and i fear it's one of the problems really with modern capitalism is there isn't enough long-term strategic thinking um, and very few executives are looking at this and seeing that we're on a bad trajectory here. And although this is not going to affect the profits next year or the year after, uh, eventually, you know, our business is going to be demonized. Products are going to be over-regulated. Our consumers are going to be demonized. And in the longer term, this is going to hurt us. I just don't think there's enough people in industry who are thinking along those lines because they themselves will probably be gone before then, by which I mean at another company. And politicians also, even if they are don't believe in these kind of restrictions on alcohol, they are also always thinking short term because they're only thinking about the next election, at least in the United States. You're only a representative yeah. for two years and then you have to start campaigning again. So we definitely have the problem of short term thinking and it does allow people to sort of make this slow change without people really noticing. But hopefully exactly. articles like yours definitely help. So what can consumers, what do drinkers do? How do we figure out what's actually real? How do we combat these claims? If the industry isn't going to do it, we should do it. How do we, wine lovers who listen to this show, how do we question this and say that we're basically not going to stand for it? Because ultimately, we have a lot of power as a group, but I don't think we use it enough. So is there anything that you could recommend that we should be doing in the UK well, and the US? I know that political systems are different, but what could we do? I'm I'm not much good when it comes to asking me about activism. Um, unfortunately, people do. People keep saying, "Yeah, what do we? What should we do? What should we do?" And I'm kind of pessimistic about it in a lot of respects. I mean, I think to, to look on a more upbeat note, people in the age of social media do have a more of a voice than, than they used to, and the kind of the barriers to entry of getting your voice out there have been enormously reduced. On the other hand, there has always been this problem in activist politics. It's uh, an economist decades ago described it as a problem of collective action, which is that you're dealing here 
not with the grassroots anti-drinking movement. I mean, this is a big difference between now and 100 years ago. The Anti-Saloon League was a genuine mass movement. You're dealing now with very small groups of full-time activist researchers and lobbyists, uh, you know, a very small clique of people, but operating at the highest levels of government and, and the media. So they can get their stuff out there across the world very easily. You know, you get something published in the Lancet, it's going to be global news if you make it kind of gimmicky enough. And they are clearly vastly outnumbered by millions upon millions of happy wine drinkers. <laughs> so they shouldn't really win, right, you think, in, in a simple numbers game. The problem is incentives. You've got a small number of people who are very, very highly incentivized to achieve their political aims, and they have a full-time job doing it. They've actually got a job. Um, they are paid often by the state to be doing this kind of stuff. Whereas people like you or me, well, I mean, we're clearly much more engaged in this than the average person just by virtue of doing a podcast about it and I write about it. But the average wine drinker just wants to drink wine, you know, and get on with their lives. So they don't really have enough of incentive to spend all the time and money that's required for them to mobilize themselves, to go out there with petitions, knocking on doors, getting buses arranged so you can go to Capitol Hill and tell these people what, what you think of them. It's just not how it works. So across the piece, whether it's sugary drink taxes or smokers' rights or, or, or wine drinkers, you have got lots of people, but their lives are being made worse in a fairly small way. Um, and the cost to them of a tax rise or a ban on shopping online is just not big enough to justify the enormous costs to them of spending hours a week doing something about it. So it's a pessimistic message, but I think it's generally speaking a fairly realistic one, which is that small, very aggressive, highly incentivized people will tend to beat millions of ordinary people who don't have the time or resources to do anything about it. And so the only people who actually are incentivized to do something about it, and this brings us kind of full circle, is is the booze industry or the people who run the saloons or the people who are importing the wine. They have a big incentive to do something about it, but they're so obviously financially conflicted <laughs> that it's easy to ignore them. And so the public health people will say, well, this is just big alcohol. Of course they're going to say that. I'm going to take the positive view or the optimistic view here and say that I do think that without a lot of hours of time, the effect of social media and people spreading the word, even to your friends and community, that this is an issue, that there is kind of a false narrative going on, and there's a lot of in information to combat it. I think even just a tweet so that people, when they see the headline, they know that at least someone they trust is questioning it. I think that's important. I think anybody listening to the show should be tweeting out your article or posting on Facebook and just saying, look, if you hear these kinds of claims, you have to question them. Because we have decades and decades of research that does not support this. And now all of a sudden, if you actually dig deeper into this, there's something going on and we just need to stay a little bit vigilant. I'm not sure that it requires organizing and, and no, it doesn't. hopping no. on a bus, but just I think the very act of questioning this keeps it top of mind. And I that's why I think your work is so important, because if we don't question what they're saying and the alcohol lobby is not willing to put out 
the research that helps support a counter narrative, then it is, I think it is incumbent upon us to say, look, here's Chris. He's writing about this. He's covering it. He's not letting it go. He's written a lot of articles and a lot of pieces about this. Let's follow this. And when it comes out, let's just make sure that we let other people know about it. The simple fact of seeing one article and then seeing nothing else after you see that BBC headline is not good. The way that we can be active as wine drinkers is just to make sure that we're constantly questioning it. Now, if a piece of research comes out that's true and that says, like, wine is going to kill us all, which we have, again, centuries of research, thousands of years of research that says, or just, you know, people living, that says that's not true. But let's say that for some reason something happened and it did. Maybe then we can pay attention. But I think at this point, our best sort of activism is just to question and question and question and to to keep using people like you who are writing this. And if you're listening to this and you're a writer or a journalist, I think it's something to think about covering, about questioning what's going on here. Because there's got to be a counter, there's got to be a second side to this. And it's worrisome for the wine industry. It's worrisome for us as drinkers. And as changes are going on, especially in the UK, I know a lot of you are listening in the UK, you need to make sure that you're taking what Chris is saying. And if you don't want to get involved politically, that's fine. But just make sure that you're countering the narrative because it's not for occasional drinkers or people who are getting into wine. This is not a good thing for them to be hearing because they don't even know what to look for. They're not in the weeds like you know we are. And you just have to make sure that if something has been going on for this long, research has been going on for this long, that we're not completely disregarding it. So I think I think the work you're doing, Chris, is huge. I mean, it's so important. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And you're quite right that, it, you know, kind of online activism is a very low cost way and pretty cost effective way as a result of doing this, you know, just liking a tweet or retweeting something, you know, you, you do it doesn't take really any of your time but it does make a tiny difference so it's worth doing and you don't have to actually get on a bus and go to capitol hill so that's great Uh, another thing you can do is write a letter uh, to either a politician or to the editor of a newspaper where when you see bad science being reported you know it's usually not deliberate um it's often just somebody who's underqualified doing it uh you know that bbc article was changed because people like me sent an email and said look this is just factually wrong and it makes a small difference. So, yeah, there's stuff you can do just as a keyboard warrior, which doesn't come at any great cost, which yeah, is certainly be- better than doing nothing. And actually, in, in terms of like sending emails to politicians and, and newspapers actually can make a meaningful difference. Also, just making your friends aware of the fact yeah. that you saw this article and it's not right. Sometimes those things sort of spread, the, the fact that things are debunked, and then there's a bit of a backlash against the fact that people are reporting poor science. So I do think that everyone listening to this, if you see this, make sure just to stay on top of it. And you have to make the decisions for yourself. And obviously, if you're listening to this wine podcast, you probably have already made the decision that you're going to drink wine. But I mean, I said this in the wine and pregnancy podcast, where I talked about my experience in drinking while pregnant. It's a personal choice. Understand, though, that if you decide that you're not going to drink because you're worried about breast cancer, that is totally your prerogative. But also understand that there's certain other intangible benefits of sharing a bottle of wine and being social with people, having and living your life. And I think I think right. probably most people and understand then, that. 
they, they are the biggest benefits of all, and we haven't even mentioned them yet. We're just talking about these health benefits and the heart and diabetes and stroke and what's the evidence on this. The real benefit and the real reason people drink is for the pleasure. I don't actually believe there's anybody who drinks alcohol purely for the health benefits. I, I very much doubt people out there who don't like drinking alcohol but feel obliged to have a small glass of wine a day. It's, it's kind of irrelevant to how people actually live their lives. It's kind of reassuring that moderate drinking certainly isn't dangerous for you. But people drink because it's enjoyable to do it. And wine especially, you know, has so much around it and so much kind of variety and choice and yeah, much to talk about with it. Um, it's very pleasurable. And that ultimately is the defense of drinking anything but drinking wine in this context it's pleasurable it doesn't matter even if the j-curve was was a myth even if it, it it gets debunked which i don't think it will but if it did it wouldn't really make any difference to my position as i say it's a big obstacle this j-curve to the temperance lobby it's it's neither here nor there to me as somebody who just believes in freedom and letting people make their own choices. If if something's risky, you know, I'm not against people drinking excessively. If that's what they like doing, it's a it's a simple trade-off between risk and pleasure, which people make all the time in all sorts of different ways, including by eating sausages. You know, so uh, let's not forget the basic consumer welfare aspect of this, because that is actually by far the most important driver of people's behaviour. Yes, I mean, human joy is not something that you necessarily should give up on. Let's. But it doesn't get it doesn't get quantified at all in public Never. health research. This is one of the problems with looking at life through the lens of mortality and disease is that you never quantify or, or even consider the, the reason that people do things, which is because it gives them pleasure. And this is why public health has turned into such a morbid and you know, negative every day there's something about this increase your risk this increase your risk and it just brings people down i don't think it informs them a lot of the time in a meaningful way not least because a lot of these reports turn out to be wrong um but it's just a very morbid way to go through life worrying about what are actually pretty small risks when i posted your article on my facebook page a lot of people were like you know what I'd rather take six months of my life and live and be happy. But again, that's something that's never quantified. Everybody's making these trade-offs. But besides the J-shaped curve, that element of pleasure is ultimately what made prohibition such a regal failure in this country. Nobody was going to stop doing it. So they wound up doing things that was the rise of the American mafia that created a lot of violence that then created a backlash of epic proportions. I have true faith that consumers and people who love wine are not going to let this happen. So that's my rallying cry to everybody. I think that we are out of time. Chris, I thank you so much. You can find his extensive work on wine and health and spectator health at ChristopherSnowden.com on his blog, Velvet Glove, Iron Fist. And I want you guys all to follow him. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. Absolute pleasure. Take care. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.